Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome back. This short session now before lunch. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce as the first speaker in this session, Professor Tim Bale. Uh, we're going to come right up to date because Tim's going to talk to us on David Cameron as an orator. Um, Tim's credentials for doing so are as a now quite highly prized and decorated uh, political writer. His excellent book on the Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron. I, I work with quite a few people who were inside the Conservative Party during that period who've said to me this is, this is a really, really good authoritative guide to what happened in the Conservative Party at that time, which is quite some commendation. Because um, I often find the gap between what the insiders think and what the academics think is quite wide. And in the case of Tim's book, it wasn't wide at all. There was a real sense that he captured it. Uh, so I really recommend that to you. Uh, Tim also in 2008 won the, won the prize for outstanding teaching, which um, puts him under some pressure to entertain and <laughs> um, enlighten you. Um, but I'm sure he's going to do that. And Tim's going to talk to us, as I say, about David Cameron and his, uh, the art of David Cameron's oratory. Tim. Thanks very much, um, Phil. Uh, I, I suppose there might be a slight age difference between the audiences that I normally address in the lecture theatre and uh, you guys here. Also, I'm slightly worried about this gap between um, practitioners and uh, academics, but I'll, I'll do my best uh, to, to overcome that. Um, David Cameron's obviously currently in a lot of trouble. If any of you know anything about British politics, you'll realise that. Um, but most people, I think, still agree that he has got very, very uh, strong presentational skills. Um, generally, he does well at the Prime Minister's questions, which is about the only um, thing that the public see him and week in, uh, week out, when he can be bothered to turn up to do it, that is. Um, he's absolutely brilliant at set-piece speeches in the House of Commons, particularly when they are not partisan speeches. So if anyone saw him talk, for example, about Bloody Sunday, or if anybody saw him uh, about uh, the Hillsborough uh, disaster, uh, I think you know, most of us would acknowledge that he did incredibly well there with those very, very sensitive um, speeches. He's pretty good uh, when it comes to party political broadcasts, party election broadcasts, uh, and apart from the first debate where he lost out to Nick Clegg, he did pretty well in those first um, prime ministerial uh, election debates. He's not so comfortable perhaps on TV when it comes to chat shows, and if anyone saw the kind of excruciating performance he put in, um, both with Jonathan Ross, although to be honest that was Jonathan Ross's fault partly, and David uh, Letterman I think it was, um, you know, you'll probably uh, recognise that. Um, as for party conference speeches, the things I'm going to talk about, he generally does get a pretty good press um, after them. And indeed, many, I think probably mistakenly, actually point to a speech he made to the party conference in 2005, before he became leader, as the kind of key to, to him being chosen by uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, I'm going to look at his speeches uh, between 2006 and 2012 to the party conference. Um, and uh, I'm going to do that because I think party conference speeches are a nice way of looking um, at uh, a politician, partly because he's having to address three audiences. He's obviously got the, you know, the fellow politicians, uh, he's got the, the membership of the party, and then he's got the uh, electorate outside, and of course the journalists who kind of mediate between those three audiences. Um, it also allows me, if you like, to compare like with like, which social scientists uh, always like to do, and to track some change over time, to see if there's any change over time. Um, 
I'm going to do this, unfortunately, in view of what somebody said this morning, and I came in a little bit late, through the prism of uh, Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> and uh, his uh, three modes of um, persuasive appeal, um, ethos, pathos, and, and logos. Uh, but I'm not going to tax you, I think, too much with that. Um, when I'm talking about ethos, I'm really talking about someone establishing their credibility, their credentials, if you like, their qualifications. When I'm talking about pathos, I'm talking about uh, an appeal uh, to emotion, sometimes under the radar of rationality, if you like. And when I'm talking about logos, as you all know, I'm talking about appealing through reasoned argument. Um, so the first thing to say, the first sort of take home point is yes, there has been change over time between 2006, when he was opposition leader, uh, and now 2012, two or three years into um, <coughs> government. Uh, it's clear that as he has moved from the position of leader of the opposition to prime minister, we see, if you like, um, less concern on his part to uh, make a claim uh, to uh, credibility through his personal values, his character, if you like, and a greater reliance on uh, reasoned argument, uh, and sometimes even on sort of numbers and statistics. That comes through very clearly. I'll talk a little bit more about that um, later. So in other words, we see, if you like, Logos beginning um, to trump, but never entirely to uh, uh, erase uh, pathos and um, ethos. Um, much, however, stays the same, having said that. Uh, in other words, it's quite easy to identify stuff that is, if you like, characteristically Cameron, um, which is possibly quite formulaic, quite tick-boxy in a way, and perhaps it's just characteristically leaders' conference speech. I haven't done a comparison with other um, leaders uh, and their conference speeches. I, I, I suspect I might well find some of the same things, but for me, anyway, these things are characteristically um, Cameron. So those are the kind of, you know, the nods to the, the standard references to his family, to uh, the history of Britain, to ordinary people, uh, to uh, the armed forces, uh, his stress on his, his optimism, and indeed the use of suitably themed pop music. I don't know if any of you use that in your own speeches uh, for your people, but uh, it's something that he likes to do. Um, Having said that, um, you know, there, there are um, some jokes in what he does, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, they've always been thin, but in fact they've got a little bit thinner on the ground as he's become more prime ministerial, if you like. Um, I'd also say that his treatment of the Labour Party has changed over time. Um, first of all, you know, coming in uh, against Blair, he was willing um, to give the Labour Party some credit, at least on the surface, that has completely disappeared now. And we get this kind of, uh, uh, I think, rather synthetic anger on his part um, about the Labour Party. Um, but I, I think overall, this change over time that I've talked about illustrates the kind of uh, the, the kind of classical rhetoricians' um, points about decorum, kind of appropriateness, and, and timeliness being very, very important. So, so let's go through um, using these um, these uh, Aristotelian frames. Uh, and talk a little bit about ethos. Well, he always begins, well, I think most politicians do when they make party conference speeches, with uh, an exordium. So he, it's all about getting the audience um, to feel that um, he is uh, both their champion and yet one of them at the same time. Uh, now, how does he do that? Um, well, particularly at the beginning, he does that more by and trying to establish, his, if you like, his authenticity rather than his authority. Um, 
Over time, however, that's changed. We've had this movement, if you like, from authenticity to uh, authority, or at least an attempted move on, on his part. Now, how does he do that? Uh, he started off doing that uh, via uh, um, making speeches which were supposedly off the cuff, okay, unrehearsed, without notes, um, famously. In 2007, he said, it might be a bit messy, but it will be me. Okay, that's, uh, I think, you know, very important for him because part of the, the, the kind of standard critique of Cameron that he was almost too polished um, and, and too much of a, if you like, a spinmeister. So he had to get over uh, that problem. Um, he also, of course, as an opposition leader and someone who'd only been in the House of Commons, after all, for four or five years before he became leader, had no record, really, to run on uh, or to recall. So he had, in some ways... To, to focus on his, his personal credo, if you like, on his uh, character. Um, and what was that about? It's all about um, his role as a father, it's all about uh, his family, it's all about his patriotism, it's all about um, the, trying to make the point that he's um, principled, but he's not ideological, um, but it, that he's a new kind of conservative. He cares <coughs> about the environment, he cares about the quality of life as well as the quantity of money. Uh, as he puts it. Uh, and in 2009 he said, it's my DNA, family, community, country. Okay, very kind of basic ways of doing that. As he's gone on, however, and as he's become um, Prime Minister, uh, things have changed slightly because he associates himself with what are generally seen as the successful parts of the government's programme. There are some, uh, believe me. Um, and also, he, he's taken to doing the kind of standard, I suppose, conservative thing, which is standing up uh, to the European Union. Um, so to take an example uh, from uh, his uh, recent speech, um, last December he said, I was at a European Council in Brussels, it was three in the morning, there was a treaty on the table that was not in Britain's interest, and 25 people around that table were telling me to sign it. But I did something that no other British leader has ever done before. I said no. Britain comes first, and I vetoed that EU treaty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't deliver it quite as well as him, I should say. <laughs> but so kind of, uh, you know, falling back on that kind of standard repertoire, if you like, for Conservatives. So that's, that's ethos. When it, when it comes to pathos, um, his appeals to emotion seems to me to revolve mainly around mention of his family. Um, very often, uh, on a number of occasions anyway, that has to do with his disabled father, who uh, overcame his disadvantages to move from uh, a very wealthy background to an extraordinarily wealthy background. <laughs> <laughs> he makes is that actually money wasn't important in his upbringing. Okay? Money wasn't important. The fact that he got a fantastic education, um, the fact that he was, you know, had a happy childhood had to do with the love of his family, uh, something we can all understand, not to do with their you know, material uh, wealth. Um, he also, on a couple of occasions, but only very, very delicately and, and indirectly, um, refers to his um, severely um, disabled son who sadly died before he became um, Prime Minister. That's something he's been very careful um, about doing, but he has used it and did use it last year in um, Birmingham. Um, he also uses uh, a bit of humour, and that humour, interestingly, is often quite self-deprecating, which I suppose is a means of kind of puncturing the, the uh, 
accusation that he's, he's rather an arrogant man. Sometimes does a little bit of gentle teasing um, of the more traditional parts um, of his party, though he has to be very careful, obviously, uh, about doing that. And occasionally he will resort to some pretty um, corny puns, even. Um, they're, they're not that great, but I did pick out the, the only one that, that even passes muster, I think, but might not be understood by uh, anybody who doesn't come from the UK, when he talked about having to watch uh, England versus Germany uh, with Angela Merkel. It was a match in which, um, uh, not unusually, England lost uh, badly um, to the Germans, and he said it brought a whole new uh, element to Anglo-German diplomatic relations. Um, whatever you do, don't mention the score. <laughs> okay, now that went down a tree, but that, that's the best of, uh, let me tell you, a pretty, pretty bad bunch. Um, so, um, what he also does um, when it comes to pathos is, is to recall letters and meetings with ordinary people. You know, the kind of anecdotes that supposedly cut through and are worth so much more than anything um, statistical. Um, uh, and David Cameron clearly lives in a world peopled by um, heroic pensioners, uh, small business people, <laughs> struggling young couples, um, benefit claimants who hate being on benefits, can't wait to get off <laughs> and of course uh, young um, uh, and very admirable um, soldiers as well. Um, most persistent, actually, right the way through the 2006-2012 the period, is his appeal to um, optimism, uh, and basing that appeal on his own innate optimism. Um, Cameron, as that optimistic character, is very, very uh, important, which is interesting, you know, if we, if we think about the philosophy of conservatism, actually underneath, one can argue that conservatism is a supremely pessimistic philosophical tradition. Um, but he's turning that around to say that actually conservatism is the most optimistic of, of British political traditions because it has confidence in people to um, make decisions for themselves. Uh, so he refers continually to his own optimistic um, character and to uh, you know, uh, this idea that the country, the party, whatever, should look on the bright side, even sometimes to the point of pastiche. Um, you know, famously, he, he ended one speech with, with the words, let sunshine win the day. Okay, now, it didn't work for me, I don't think it worked for that many people, but, uh, you know, it, it, I guess it gets emphasised is quite how, how strongly he, he pushes that point. Uh, and then there's the use of music. Okay, it doesn't always do it, but on three or four occasions he has left the stage um, accompanied by um, various uh, tunes. Uh, 2007, just to give you the rundown, uh, you can get it if you really want by uh, Jimmy Cliff. I'm not going to sing these, but <laughs> they might be going through. If I was really whizzy, I'd have them up on YouTube. Uh, and then 2010, It Takes Two by Marvin Gaye and. Oh, I can't remember who sang it. Tammy Sorrell. Tammy Sorrell. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and 2012, much to the chagrin, no doubt, of Paul Weller, the Jams cover of Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield. But, um, so, you know, but then again, that's the optimistic trophy, if you like, um, coming in there. Um, the other thing Cameron does, uh, you know, pathetically, in the true sense of the word, and perhaps the other sense of the word as well, is to sometimes sort of drop into the demotic, okay, to show that, in fact, you know, he is a man of the people, he does talk like the rest of us. So he'll, he'll use phrases like, yeah, right, okay? <laughs> he'll talk about children as kids. Um, he'll... Um, He'll say, you're having a laugh, 
Okay. Uh, I don't think he drops the H. It's not, it's not, not George Osborne. Uh, he'll, use, he'll use the word quid instead of pounds. Um, he'll talk about nicking rather than stealing. And of course, uh, and this comes through in a number of his speeches, he often uses the word mum, okay, for mother, or indeed mummy. Now, this might be chippy and classist on my part, but I suspect David Cameron comes from a kind of background where mummy is rather more normal than mum. Uh, so it doesn't quite strike me as authentic, but you know, um, it, it seems to work, at least as far as he and his speechwriters uh, are concerned. So what about logos, uh, this kind of appeal to reason? Um, well, as I say, in opposition it was interesting at first, because uh, although Labour after 2005 was never as popular as it had been you know, before the Iraq war, um, I think there was still a general feeling that it knew what it was doing, as far as most people were concerned, and the Conservatives didn't. So David Cameron based his attack on Labour very much um, around the idea that Labour was well-intentioned, um, but that uh, it was mistaken and the things that it were doing um, weren't working, but they weren't necessarily kind of ideologically uh, wrong. Those mistakes were understandable. Um, often um, the appeal to reason is based on this counterposition of the state versus society. Okay? Seeing those in some ways as a kind of zero-sum uh, game. Uh, and it's also about him actually taking personally a very kind of reasonable approach, and an explicitly reasonable approach to uh, themes and issues that previously the Conservative Party um, has seemed to have a, a, a problem uh, with, in particular immigration, um, in stressing his, his reason for focusing that. Um, often, I would say, uh, you know, by way of criticism, really, that, that um, very often, you know, even his kind of reasoned arguments are based on things that are supposedly self-evident rather than actually being evidenced, if you like. Um, so very often based on, on common sense, which is quite a populist um, term in, in some ways, rather than kind of empirical um, research. But they're nonetheless um, fairly uh, effective um, for that. And increasingly, actually, he's become deliberately and quite explicitly pedagogic, um, you know, using phrases like, the argument I want to make today. Uh, and indeed, if you look um, at one of his um, very recent leader's speeches, the one in 2012, which, which he did get a, a very good press, actually, in Birmingham. Um, it was all about, if you like, trying to educate the British um, public about the global race that we were in, which necessitated the policies um, that uh, the government was uh, putting through. That, that was a, almost a lecture, really, rather than a speech, but yet very well received, at least by the... Uh, the, the press, whether it's received well by the public, is more difficult um, to tell. And in fact, that speech was typical of what we've seen gradually come in since 2010 when he became Prime Minister, which is a much greater uh, tendency to talk um, in specific terms about policy and to adduce as evidence, statistics, numbers, etc., in a way that he, he never um, used to do before. Now, that's because obviously he can. Um, may also be to do with um, the speech writing team, the fact that he's got you know, the civil service that can provide him with these kind of um, stats. Um, so so there, there is a, a change there. So to wind up, really, strictly speaking, I would say that David Cameron has actually made a, a transition, as an orator anyway, from uh, leader of the opposition to prime minister. Um, but that rhetorically speaking anyway, um, that um, tradition 
Uh, sorry, that transition has become all the more evident, if you like, as he's come under pressure, because it's not uh, a case of a, a prime minister of a government that is seen to be succeeding. So that where the problem was once, if you like, authenticity for him, it's increasingly, I think, become one of authority and will become one of authority, particularly after the events, um, if you like, of, of this week in Parliament. Uh, and, and that, I guess, brings me to my final point. And I think it probably accords with things that people um, uh, have said or, already. Uh, and that is that, in the end, authority can't come from the fact that a politician looks and sounds like a prime minister. David Cameron, since he took over in 2010, has looked and sounded like a prime minister. The problem for him, I think, is that he's having difficulty in acting like one. Thank you very much. Um, I want to get you into some questions uh, in a moment. I just just, uh, just to say, I think if you did do the analysis of other leaders at conferences, someone who's written them, I think you'd find very much the same. I think those tropes of the the family and the, the formula and the stories of the half fictional people that you sort of <laughs> somebody who you know once nearly met, um, they are common to all political leaders. I think. I mean, they, and. The, the great predicament in a conference speech, actually, is to try to tie together so many things which don't have any link, link yeah. in truth, because it's the one speech of the year when you have to talk about everything, and you need to somehow find a theme which will link together the, your foreign policy with your policy on local government, with your policy on education and health. And that linking theme can very easily become extremely stretched, as you can, you can imagine. So it's always hard to, to get that. So you, the, the thing you're trying to find in any speech, which is that central chord, can, is, is the hardest thing to do in a conference speech. And you, you rely on lots of, sort of essentially, cliches, which mm. in Cameron's full speeches are full of cliches, but I wouldn't say that anybody else uh, avoids that much better. How important are they? Uh, I think that they're very important to buy off certain people in the audience. And um, that's a crucial political fact of political speeches, that you need to, you've got to remember that there will be your second in charge at the education department who thinks he doesn't like me, he hates me, he hates me. And then you're mentioned in the conference speech, he thinks he loves me, he loves me. <laughs> and they're very important political moments. And I think that the way you ended up, it's also crucial what you end up doing sometimes is you, you think what we're going to do here is we're going to speak over the party to the public. And that's what Cameron did in his last speech. And you've always got that choice of what's your balance in this speech between a speech which is aimed at these people in the hall, who are the activists, mm -hmm. and a speech which is aimed above their heads to a wider public who might be listening. Now you've always got to do both, but the, the balance between those two is one of the crucial choices you make as you're drafting that speech. But let, let me invite you all to come. Yes, sir. My name is Jose Jan from Spain. I have a question. Before he was the leader of the opposition party, he had to compete to, for the leadership. I read somewhere that he learned that the speech by heart to win this election. Is this true? 
Uh, he certainly did win the speech by, um, sorry, did learn the speech by heart and gave it um, without notes and that Im impressed lots of people. I mean, uh, without going into the detail, I'm not sure that that actually did win him um, the leadership. It certainly didn't harm him and it's, uh, it's, I think, important that he made what was an effective speech when his main opponent made a terrible speech and that didn't help his main opponent. I think there was also rather more behind it, though, because his, his main opponent was never going to win that election anyway, because basically, I'm looking around who's here, most people in the Conservative Party see David Davis, his main rival, as a bit of a shit. And <laughs> <laughs> Lazy shit as well, <laughs> uh, who journalists didn't like. Um, so uh, he was never going to win anyway. And um, Cameron, I think it, it, it did help them, it helped propel him, but there were other things going on as well. I was, uh, soon after that, I was on a radio programme, and uh, the, the interviewer said to me, What did you make of David Davis's speech? And I, I said, much as you've done. I said, I don't think Cameron's speech necessarily won him the leadership, but David Davis certainly lost it. Yeah. Uh, my interviewer said, I wrote that speech. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a few seconds of dead air time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that it was a very brilliant analysis of the content and the text of uh, mm. Cameron's speeches, but I wonder whether you would detect a dissonance between the, the text of his speeches and his delivery. Because I suspect that he's uncomfortable about being the supplicant. And many of his speeches are positioning him as wanting acceptance by the audience, whichever that mm. audience happens to be. And I suspect that he, um, uh, when you talk about him being uh, pedagogic from time to time, that that is the, the, the more natural position for him. That he wants to be say, this is my argument. These are my things to do. I'm, I'm going to create to, to accept or not, and when he when he's forced into a position of trying to be the supplicant and seek the acceptance of the audience, I suspect that he's uncomfortable, and that is why I feel that his speeches don't really work. That is interesting. I mean, I, I, I would agree with you actually. I think when he's teaching his party a, a lesson, albeit sometimes quite a, a gentle lesson, I think he is a little bit more comfortable. And that might be, I think, to do not just with his personality, but, you know, and, and obviously all credit to, to, to Phil in this, is that a lot of Tory politicians of his generation um, really have as their model Tony Blair, to be honest. So part of the kind of uh, modus operandi of Tony Blair, obviously, particularly when he was in opposition, but also obviously when he was a uh, you know, prime minister, was actually telling his party things that he didn't necessarily want to hear. And in some ways that has been, uh, that has set up a kind of template, if you like, for leadership uh, in this country. But of course there's clearly a huge, <laughs> there's clearly a huge dissonance between David Cameron's desire to do that and his ability and willingness to do that, as we see on the European issue. I mean, that is a very good example of uh, an issue, without getting too much into the politics of it and moving away from the rhetoric, but let's talk about that. That's a very good example of an issue which was it was the iceberg issue, it was always going to be the iceberg issue, and it was that um, that has caused you know, so many problems for him, because he didn't deal with it in opposition. He wasn't the heir to Blair in the end, because he wasn't actually prepared really to tell his party you know, um, to get off on something that um, it, it felt very, very deeply about. Okay, gay marriage, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, some social liberal stuff. But what really mattered to the Conservative Party and, and what really, I think, causes this mismatch between what its ideology has become 
and uh, what it takes to govern you know, a small or medium-sized country on the kind of periphery of this continent in the 21st century um, you know, is, is Europe. And yet Cameron must have known that, I think, but never really you know, took it to his party and dealt with it, with the result that he's given and given and given, and still they want more. Uh, yes, uh, then at the back. Um, thank you. Just one quick observation. I yeah. think uh, about Cameron learning speeches. My understanding is that when he won the Whitney nomination yes. at the 401 election, the local selectocracy there was amazed that this man could be so eloquent, so fluent, of thinking on his feet. It was only during the leadership speech later that they learned it was a trick. And apparently, there was some disappointment when he's been a Whitney. So I think it's <laughs> rather like a, you know, someone's been chatting, seeing someone chat up. Next girlfriend using the same lines. <laughs> <laughs> my, my question actually is whether or not, I suppose it's a, a technical question for us here as professionals. Yeah. Have you been able to overlay or ascertain the relationship between his advisors and his speechwriters, perhaps, and this, the different uh, conference speeches you, you look at? Uh, well, I mean, something I should have said was, that, of course, these conference speeches have not been written with the same team. Um, you know, the, the, the team has changed. Um, and in one case, the team changed very quickly because um, you, you'll know that Julian Glover was recruited um, to help write his speeches. Who, who did he write for? The Times? The for the Guardian, sorry. Yes, of course. And that was the interesting thing. He, he, he uh, came from the Guardian. It didn't last very long at all. It just didn't work. Um, and Cameron's brought back um, Claire. Is it Foges. How do you pronounce it? For Foges, I think. Foges? Yes, I never know how to pronounce yeah. it. Um, who, who used to work with the person who was in charge before um, Glover came along. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose without wanting, you know, I suppose it's a, almost a dangerous thing to say in, in this audience, but uh, I, I'm not sure how different um, the speeches would have been had they been written by someone else, if you like, because I think there is a rhythm between opposition and government that I'm talking about that, that transition, and I think there is a kind of grammar and a kind of expectation around party conference speeches which perhaps mean that your, your speechwriter is perhaps less important in, in, in that particular kind of set piece address than, than he or she might be with other more kind of ad hoc speeches. There's less room for manoeuvre, if you like, as, as Phil said. Yes, the back. I'm really interested in the authority authenticity binary yeah. thing presented because if I think about Thatcher and Boris Johnson, both very successful conservative speakers, they actually, I think, have an authority that comes from authenticity yeah, or had. So, do you think Cameron has a posh boys problem? Yes, he has, and I think that's why you see him try some of the tricks that you know I, I, I alluded to before. I mean, it's. Can I just talk a little bit about Boris? We were having a conversation about this earlier on. Um, people tip Boris as a you know a future leader, a future prime minister. It, it seems to me, though, that um, Boris's appeal is, as you say, based very much around um, authenticity, um, but also a kind of ability to, uh, to do things off the cuff, to say amusing things. I'm not sure that that is going to work as a Prime Minister, because given that the markets are depending on what you say, given that foreign governments and your relationships with them are dependent on what you say, <laughs> given that legislation is highly dependent uh, on the defence you make of it uh, in Parliament, on the floor of the House, where Boris wasn't particularly successful, it has to be said. I'm not sure he could actually do that job unless he, he, he changes. We, we were talking about this before. He has changed over time a little bit, but I'm just not sure that that's Boris's kind of natural um, home. Whereas I think for Cameron, 
whatever his weakness is, he's not going to make a mistake like that, whereas I think Boris could do. I think you were right before you said about Cameron on the big set pieces occasions. He's very, very impressive. Yeah. He really cuts it. I mean, the Bloody Sunday was was an absolutely superb piece of of writing, and and I happen to know that that was him. He was given a, a standard text by the civil yeah, service yeah. before, and he rewrote it over the weekend because he thought, no, this just won't do. This is a moment I have to seize. And mm. at his best, I think he's very, very good. Um, I think you also have to say, in, in fairness to Cameron, that. In pushing against the grain of his own party, it's partly because he, he's, he's closer to his own party than Tony Blair yes. ever was. But it's also true that it's harder to do when you have no majority. He's in a very weak position. So when people criticise Cameron for his weakness, what they don't realise is that he's weak. It's not him that is weak, it's he's in a weak position. And actually the, the problem with Cameron is the opposite of what people think. He thinks he's strong and he isn't. And then he has to capitulate later. Mm. He needs to capitulate earlier, <laughs> thereby, thereby give the impression of strength. Oh, Whereas Blair had a 179-seat majority, and all these sort of lunatic left-wing MPs, he could simply ignore them. Mm. And Cameron doesn't have that luxury. So I think you need to cut him a bit of slack, I think, because yeah. the political situation you're in, he's in is extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, every session is leading me wishing it could go on longer, which I think is probably a good sign. Um, but I, we, we can't go on longer, I'm, I'm afraid. So please join me in thanking Tim Bale.